Welcome to the Art and Science of Joy podcast. This podcast is all about inspiring people to live more joyfully. So if you're seeking a bit more joy in your own life or seeking to bring some more joy to the lives of others, then this podcast could well be for you. And in the second series of the podcast, we're focusing on joy's superpowers, special powers each and every one of us can cultivate in order to navigate these turbulent times in which we live. I'm Andrew Cannon, and I have the honor to be your host. In each episode, I'll be inviting our guests to share their words of wisdom on a specific joy superpower. And in this episode, I'm excited to be talking with Rob Volpe on the joy superpower of empathy. Rob is an astute observer of life and a master storyteller who brings empathy and compassion to the human experience. As CEO of Ignite360, he leads a team of professionals serving the world's leading brands. He is author of Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis One Conversation at a Time, and a thought leader in the role of empathy in marketing and in the workplace. And he's a contributor to Entrepreneurs Leadership Network and a frequent speaker on the topic of empathy. Rob lives in San Francisco with his husband and three cats. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hi, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So empathy, that's your thing, right? So could you tell us sort of when and why you decided to focus your energy on empathy? Sure. Yes. So empathy is something that's always been important to me. I think, uh, uh, you know, we're all born with the ability to have empathy. For me, though, I think it got heightened due to growing up in small town, Indiana, had some uh, difficult experiences getting teased and bullied with my classmates. Mm. And empathy became something that I, I described that as my, uh, you know, if I were Peter Parker, my spider bite, which turned me into, you know, Spider-Man, unleashed the, the superpower. Yep. And yep. It was something that I then started utilizing in order to better navigate the, the school and the, the classroom and my uh, classmates and, and whatnot. And, but it was really um, 12 years or so ago when the study came out of the University of Michigan that found that university students after 2001 or after 2000 had a 40% decline in their ability to see the point of view of their classmates. Oh, wow. And that that wasn't just a momentary dip. It was a steady decline. And then it stayed at that lower level for the rest of the, the aughts. Um, and so, uh, you know, I heard that it was like, oh my God, like that's, that's bad. Those are people now that are adults, they're in the workplace, they're becoming parents moving on about their life. And they're, they're operating at a decreased level of empathy, which mm -hmm. then ends up meaning we're going to have more confrontation with each other. We're not going to see eye to eye. It's going to hurt our ability to collaborate, to uh, make good decisions, to communicate effectively with each other, to have compassion with one another, all the things that empathy ultimately enables. And so, you know, in my work as an insights and strategy professional, that's what we do. We're in the business of helping our clients understand who their consumer is and what makes them tick and the why. And you need empathy in order to do that. And so it was a natural evolution for us to say, all right, well, well what's going on and how do we help our clients be more empathetic and, and looking at ourselves and thinking, well, how, what do we do? How do we become empathetic? And what, what are the things that we need to overcome? And particularly as a qualitative researcher, 
you know, in non-pandemic times, but even now, I mean, we're doing Zoom calls, uh, Zoom interviews, but when you go on an in-home with somebody that's completely different from who you are, you really need to um, work extra hard in order to reach empathy. It's not just an interaction with your neighbor who you see, you know, every Sunday night on trash night. Um, so that's that's where it all kind of came about. And, and you've just seen since uh, 2010, even when that study was announced, just the continued decline in, in mm. our empathy abilities. Um, some recent data that we've got, uh, the study we did in January of nearly a thousand US adults, 31% of people were unable to agree with the point the the statement, I can see the point of view of others. Yeah. I can easily see the point of view of others. One third. So like one third of the people you're gonna run into today are not able to easily see your point of view. And, and that's, it's sad, it's shocking, it's it's disheartening, um, but that's what we need to, to work on to fix, to give people the skills so that they can um, use their empathy muscle and, and be more empathetic. All right, well, it's certainly a noble cause and certainly you've got a, a big field to work in. So, but let's backtrack a little and let's, define empathy because I was fascinated as part of the background for this when I was reading some research by some folks called Cuff, Brown, Taylor and Howard in 2016 when they looked at the different definitions of empathy and they found in fact 43 different discrete definitions um, you yeah. know different types of cognitive, affective, congruent, incongruent, whether it's a, state, a trait or a state, whether it's automatic or controlled so there's lots of choices how do you define it? So, yes. And that was one of the uh, things as I first really started immersing into empathy. It's like, wow, there's a lot of different things and ways that people are defining it. And I think um, it, it creates confusion for somebody that's even interested in empathy. And so then it makes it harder for them to even think about where to start. As I think about empathy, I think about the two, two primary types of empathy, um, which is cognitive empathy, seeing the perspective of somebody else, seeing a point of view, mm -hmm. and then emotional empathy, which is the emotional, I feel what you're feeling. I can, I can feel what you're going through. And those are used in, in, at different times and in different ways with different people effectively. Um, and so to me, the starting point is just understanding like, hey, there's two different types of empathy primarily. Um, and then neuroscientists, uh, Helen Reese uh, being one of them, they've found different parts of the brain that light up depending on the type of empathy yeah. that you're using. So um, so yeah, I start, I start there. I don't know if that sparks a, a question. That, yeah, that does. I mean, I suppose the question being when you've looked at this data of seeing this drop in empathy um, over the last 10 years. And I think some of the research I've seen, you know, it's even going back to 30 years or more, there's been this continuous sort of decline um, that's happened. And, and is that related to both of these forms of empathy? Um, or is it more one than the other behind that? So you have a sense of that. Where yeah, that's a, down. a good question. I think um, in, in the data that we have, that we just fielded recently, um, there's you, you definitely see this split and you see the confusion about, am I talking about cognitive empathy or emotional empathy? Um, emotional empathy is what you have with what I call your, your close circle, your tribe, 
you know, if we were back in prehistoric living in caves time, it's the people that are in your cave with you, that that immediate sort of family and, and very close friends that you've had, you know, lifelong friends from, from school days. And then cognitive empathy is what you use with other. And I believe, I don't have data on it, my, my gut is that it's the cognitive piece of it that is really challenged uh, in particular, because when you talk to people about being able to, and what we've seen in the data, people are able to feel what their tribe is feeling, but they're having difficulty sort of crossing the, the line and dealing with the people from the other cave down the road um, that just have different rituals and beliefs. From, yeah. from and obviously we don't want to go too deep into, into politics, but I remember um, at a, what was then a CASRO conference um, just after the election of Trump and listening to a presentation by Cambridge Analytica on how they had sort of deliberately sort of pushed messages to create distance between people um, <laughs> instead of bringing them together, finding where are the differences and how can we accentuate these differences? So I was wondering to what extent you've looked at, you know, how media and in particular social media is causing us to lose empathy because of these echo chamber effects that we're seeing. Yeah, so, um, and I think you referenced in one of the studies where uh, the empathy decline, you know, has been going back, you know, decades, even before 2000, 2001. And that's true. If you, if you look at just that University of Michigan data, the line graph shows a peak where it started in 1979, and it was a gradual decline, but it was more pronounced, and then got to that 40% less than where it started in 2001. Um, the way I, I look at social media, you have to look at all the different things that are, have been going on in society. And it's the, you know, I, I talk about it as the unintended consequences of good intentions. Mm. So even technology and the way that we've started to relate to technology, whether that's, you know, video game players or your computers, you're, you can be sitting on your sofa having playing a video game with somebody. And back in the day, we used to do that before it all was up in the cloud, but your, your engagement is actually with the device rather than with your friend. So you're not having those empathy moments and those ability, those times where you can actually connect with each other, understand where somebody's coming from. It's all about winning the game and you're focused on the game. And then you look at the way kids, um, the, the way kids are being raised, where, uh, how they're, it's about the way they're being raised, but the way their time is being managed now. So with the increase in, in two-parent households working, kids suddenly started, you know, and, and we saw this in the pandemic as a result of, oh, all after-school activities are closed. Well, mom and dad are working. What do we do with the kids? And then childcare started to become an issue. And I don't think people realized how much we were relying on those activities as a form of childcare, as well as then helping the child get ahead. Back in the day, um, when I was a child, back in the 70s and 80s, we didn't have that. I was, my mom went to work, my dad was working, and my sister and I became latchkey kids. Like we came home on the bus and got, you know, unlocked the door and made a snack and did whatever we needed to do. And when we were bored, we would figure out what to do. So, you know, you go, mom, I'm bored. Well, go, go to your room and play, go outside, find something to do. You end up role playing 
in those moments. You, whether you're playing with dolls or action figures or you're playing cops and robbers or superheroes, you're role-playing because you're not you as a cop. You are you in the shoes of a superhero. You, you are Tony Stark as Iron Man and you are doing this. You're not, you know, being, you know, Jimmy and, and running off and, yeah. and taking it from that perspective. All of those things help build empathy skills. All of those things. So that that's some of the muscle building that happens when we're younger. Then you layer in social media. And yes, we are now able to, the, the, the cave has been completely redefined and it's now been stretched um, into an ideological cave mm. that you cannot really break, well, you could break out of it, but most people don't have the cognition to, to actually do that, to seek out opposing counter thoughts. So they're living in, you know, sound echoes around in a cave. You're listening in an echo chamber. Mm. And it's so easy now on social media to find the, the people that feel and think just like you and to just listen to them. And that's very safe and comfortable. And it's reaffirming of your of self. Um, additionally, then all the algorithms as, as Cambridge Analytica freely was admitting back before they got there, got in trouble. Um, but then as Francis Haugen, yeah. But then as Francis Haugen, the, the recent whistleblower on Facebook and all the algorithms, like we're demonstrating it's promoting hate that, you know, they were giving more weight to um, posts that were eliciting anger responses um, rather than just likes or love even. So you're not, you, you, they, they were pushing the extremes. Um, and, and, and social media has given voice to people that wouldn't have had a voice in the same way or that platform. And it, it's, and there's an, 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 an anonymity to it as well that people can hide behind. So, hey, I don't care whose feelings I'm going to hurt because they're never going to find me or know who I am. And ha, 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 ha. So there's a, there's a lot of things with yeah. social media. And yes, it has all contributed to our current sad state of discourse and engagement with one yeah. another. But so it's fascinating, right? Because at some level you could think that, you know, being with your tribe, being with people who have the same opinion could increase um, levels of empathy amongst that tribe but at the same time that lack of interaction with people who are different different points of view is actually decreasing your empathy levels is that what you're finding yeah because you're not challenged mm. to see somebody else's point of view if everybody has the same point of view yeah. you know yeah. if if they all believe the same you know thing about whatever political topic social issue whatever it is there's, there's no stretching. There's no need to use the empathy muscle then because you're all just nodding and yeah, 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 that's right. And you're feeding on each other and getting each other more and more angry. Yeah. So I think we've, we've seen, you know, that there have been these negative consequences from this decline in empathy in many areas of our lives. And, and obviously it's fantastic that now you're taking the bull by the horns and uh, doing your bit to, to change the, the dynamic here to pendulum swing the other way and you know let's sort of now focus on the benefits of empathy and I love the quote by the Dalai Lama which I picked up which says only the development of compassion and understanding for others can bring us the tranquility and happiness we all seek I mean beautifully said as only the Dalai Lama can say um, <laughs> but what do you see as some of the key benefits of empathy from your research you know, empathy is the, 
I, I, I love analogy and metaphor, and that's my form of storytelling. So I'm constantly using different things. Um, but I talk about empathy now. It, it's really this sort of waypoint on a journey or a roundabout if you were on a road. And, you know, you're coming out of the dark forest of not having empathy. You reach the roundabout of empathy, and then suddenly you have all these different directions that you can go to. And, and I think that's where our lack of empathy has so damaged us is because it does show up in so many different ways. Mm. You know, it, it in as I was saying earlier, it shows up in communication, collaboration, critical thinking, um, decision-making, trust, forgiveness, compassion, so many different things. There's, there's more. And I, I, I have this vision of a PowerPoint slide that I want to put together someday <laughs> that reflects all of that. Mm. And so if you're not empathetic, if you're not using your empathy skills and your muscle isn't strong, you're not going to be as successful with those, ultimately those skills, decision-making, communication, collaboration, ideation is another one, problem solving. That means that you're not going to be as effective as a you know, leader, manager, team member, individual contributor, partner, you know, vendor, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, parent, you know, sibling, all the things, you know, so it, it's, it's like the glucosamine in our joints, you know, we need it in order to have, it's the lubricant that makes everything run better uh, and run more smoothly. Yeah. So it has this benefit if I sort of recap on collaboration is one of the, the benefits that stems from empathy, correct? Yeah, um, it, it helps you see the point of view of the people you're working with. Yeah, um, helps creativity and innovation. You understand right. the need of somebody else so you can solve for that. Mm -hmm. And engagement, do you think it makes people feel that they belong more strongly to the, to the team or the company or the community? Oh. Um, absolutely empathy there's there's some data that i don't have committed completely to memory but there's data from a study that came out last summer that found something like two-thirds of employees reported that they were uh more engaged when they had empathetic leaders mm. versus only 13 percent of people found that they were engaged uh 90 of gens this fact i do know i have that this one in memory 90 of gen z say that um, they're more likely to stay at a company if they have empathetic leadership. However, only one in four uh, employees broadly feel that the empathy is sufficient in their organization. So you can see where there's tension mm -hmm. of people are valuing empathy, but organizations aren't necessarily providing it or the perception is that they're not providing it. Um, and it, it creates a problem for, I mean, leaders are kind of befuddled right now because they're trying to figure out how to be more empathetic. Right. And it's, you know, I was talking to a, a leader or a team the other week and they were telling me that, you know, they've had employees now for almost two years, which they haven't met in person, right? That they've hired them almost two years ago and they still haven't met them. And it's a challenge, you know, to have that, that empathy over Zoom um, with somebody you've never met. Um, they were saying how challenging it was, you know, you couldn't pick up on those weak signals in the same way 
that you mm-hmm. could in a meeting room and then you could go and talk to the the guy after the meeting at the coffee machine or water cooler and say hey saw you weren't yourself today you know what's going on um and that's really hard on zoom because everybody seems to go right bye next meeting rush um, yeah 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 it's uh we we have it can be done but we have to learn to operate differently mm. um and you have to learn not to um ask you know don't ask a leading or a closed question i was talking to somebody earlier this week they had been in an all-day workshop they thought it went well we're talking with a colleague afterward and said wasn't that the best meeting ever and the other colleague fortunately had the kind of sense of self strength of character to say no i didn't think so and here's why mm. but they weren't you know it, he wasn't coming at it from an empathetic place of going, oh, you know what? Maybe she wasn't feeling the same way that I was about it. I need to explore this in a certain way. So if anything, managers, leaders need to be using even more empathy and really coming at things very openly. Um, you know, I, I wrote in one of the entrepreneur pieces recently, like you got to give time in your standup or your one-on-one or whatever you call your touch base with your employees shoot the shit for 15 minutes. You'll get to the business stuff, get to connect with the person, find out what's going on. If you see a child doing cartwheels in the background, ask about what's happening Um, in in, in a positive way and from a place of curiosity Mm. to understand, because that's what's going to build those personal connections. And you will start to be able to read body language a little bit better you're going to notice things in the eyes and are they paying attention to the screen are they looking away um squinting glim- or brow furrowing um during those calls and then yeah you got to create the you have to create the water cooler moment you know because yeah that serendipitous like oh let me just bump into you over here it doesn't happen in the same way no it doesn't so there's an onus on the leaders to develop the skills and do you feel at the moment there's sort of enough emphasis placed on that or do you feel that companies could do a better job at helping their leaders learn these skills i think there's a growing awareness of it but companies are struggling um, to figure out what to do. And it's also, I was thinking about it this morning, like it isn't just coming from the leader, mm-hmm. the people within the organization. So I don't think the answer is, oh, let's go put, you know, our, our executive leadership team through, you know, we offer an empathy camp. So I'll use that. Like, let's put everybody through Ignite 360's empathy camp training. That's not the only answer. Like, yes, you need to do things like that. You need to give them the skills, but you've got to foster a culture of empathy in your organization. It starts at the top for sure, and it'll filter down. But if people don't understand how to respond empathetically to their manager, and even just check in with their manager because, you know, hey, we're all human. We're all having feelings. We're all going through, you know, crazy two years of pandemic yeah. and continuing. You can check in with them too and have an honest conversation and, and be a little more human. So I think it, it at all levels in organizations, people need to better understand how to be empathetic yeah. and how to, how to give it and receive it. Correct. I think also that peer to peer level thing, which is, you know, another thing that maybe doesn't happen so much in a in a Zoom world where all the meetings are organized by the boss. um, And there's not just that sort of the 
team getting together, you say around the coffee machine, around the lunch table. Push back my cube wall and look over and chat with my colleague who's yep. sitting there and go, gosh, I can't believe we won that project. That's awesome. Or man, what a jerk. Right. Um, yeah, that doesn't happen. Or maybe it happens on Slack channels. Um, but but yeah, it's not, it's not the same. It's a little bit, but leadership, obviously, um, empathy is central to that to inspiring obviously and empowering people um with their lives and so that's a good segue i presume into your your new book um tell me more about that um what inspired you to write the book yeah so we it was on this journey um of understanding we need to do something about this empathy crisis and i frequently uh, guest lecture at universities, um, consumer behavior marketing courses. And I was in one of the classes and I, I, when I knew this about the empathy crisis, I started to make sure I included a section about empathy because it's like, well, let's get them while they're young and mm. make them bring awareness to it so that hopefully they can choose a different path as they, they grow older. And interestingly enough, our data is finding that it is Gen Z that's most engaged and interested in empathy and wanting it and, and seeking and figuring it out. So anyway... Um, about six years ago, I was guest lecturing and telling my stories, talking about empathy and sharing some of my adventures and misadventures, really, of going into strangers' homes and trying to be empathetic, overcoming my judgment, listening, paying attention. And the kids just sat in rapt attention, you know, slack jawed, like, oh my God, like wide eyed, like they were eating it up. And this voice inside me just said, this is what you need to write about. These are the stories you need to tell. People need to hear this. And so that's what got me going on, on starting the book and like, okay, well, what have, what have my experiences been and how, what did I learn from them? How does that fit into the five steps? And, and so the book got started from there. Good. And we're going to look at those five steps in a minute. But again, I just want to spend a little time looking at, the sort of the definition of empathy, but now maybe from a, a trait or um, sort of a state aspect. And I was inspired by the quote by the poet Maya Angelou um, when she said, I think we all have empathy. We may not have enough courage to display it. And I Can I tell you how much I love that quote? It's, you can. It is an epigraph in the book. I always talk about it in my presentation it's on the bookmark that we made for the book it's on the the back of it she's right there mm. um, it, it, it's everything to me i mean the dalai lama yes that is exactly what we were aspiring to and here she i think so easily articulate beautifully articulated the challenge is that we just need to have the courage. Mm. Um, we need to have the courage to do it, to be vulnerable, to share, to be open, to offer support to somebody else. I mean, empathy is a gift that you're giving someone. Um, you know, take the time, be courageous, try it. It's going to make you feel better ultimately um, because you have a lot less of the uh crap the noise the the negative sort of feelings if you can get beyond that and i think that's what the dalai lama was talking to of 
understanding, which it, you know, empathy is a form of understanding, and then compassion ultimately um, for your for your fellow man. It is, and and I think you know it's a gift in a way that we all have it at a level. And you know, I've looked into the research, and there's a massive study done by Cambridge University on the the 23andMe sort of genetics data to to look at that and and showing that that yes there is this proportion of empathy which is defined by our genetics but it's only a minor part um in the most case more for um emotional empathy than cognitive empathy but but really we do have the possibility to you know define our own level of empathy at the end and develop it as a skill and yep. I think we're both a firm believer in that. And in the book, you identify five steps or talk about five steps to empathy. So if you could, without us, you know, reading the whole book to us, but give us a little insight to the these five steps and how Absolutely. people can use them. Absolutely. And there's uh, studies from developmental psychologists who have found that, yes, empathy is you trick your parents trigger it with their toddlers and there are but there is an empathetic response that kids naturally will display Mm -hmm. but then it is up to parents to help nurture that along and strengthen the muscle up and you know partly model the behavior and then encourage it nurture it in their kids Mm -hmm. so as we you know we looked at the studies that were out at the time um and the understanding of what was going on and then as i mentioned examined our own you know looked inward and said okay well what's happening for us what happens with our clients when we're trying to connect our clients to their consumer what are the barriers that we keep noticing and and running into and you know we're we're experts at human behavior so that felt like okay i see i see what's happening and it came down to there's five steps and these are the things that you need to do in the moment and and the gap that i saw and what got me focused on this was you know yeah the study was coming out trump was getting elected there was so much of a cry for like we need to have empathy but nobody was explaining they were explaining like, yeah, you need to go watch the TV shows that the other person watches or eat in the restaurants that they eat in. And yes, you do. But if you have judgment when you go into that, if you if you haven't dismantled your judgment, you're never going to get beyond just like, okay, I had a meal. And right, could make it worse, in fact, couldn't that you could go in there and reaffirm your your biases. Your biases. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the first step is dismantling your judgment. It is the biggest obstacle. It's the roadblock. It keeps coming up constantly in all of the steps, but I wanted to put that one first um, because you've got to get over that. And it is your biases, stereotypes, past experiences, all the things. The second step is asking good questions. So when you're in that moment and you're engaging with somebody, you need to ask good, open, not closed questions, things that are curious, exploratory in nature, try not to lead um, in order to create space for somebody to share and take you wherever they may go based on what's true for them and what they're experiencing. Mm. Uh, So that's the second step. Third step is to actively listen. So yes, you need to hear what somebody is saying, but you also need to pay attention. We were talking earlier about the nonverbal cues. Mm. You have to pay attention to that. Look at the surrounding, whether you're in person or you're on a Zoom call, like I see that you've got, it looks like some paintings perhaps in the background. If we had time, I might ask you about those and where they came from and and the story. Hmm. And doing those things, like it tells, it ultimately helps me understand you more. 
um, and who you are as a person or where you're coming from. So you've got to actively listen. Um, and so it's using all your senses, including your sixth, your sixth sense of intuition. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth step is to integrate into understanding. I talk about this one as, you know, it's like, okay, I love chocolate ice cream. Other people like vanilla ice cream. Doesn't mean that they're wrong. Doesn't mean I have to stop liking chocolate ice cream. It just means that I have to uh, make room in my head that there are other ways of looking at things and to be open to that and start to understand and integrate what have I been hearing and what does all of that mean? In order to then in step five, use solution imagination. So that is the stepping into the shoes of somebody else, imagining what it might be like to be them, and then continuing a conversation from that perspective. And so in the book I use, because like, okay, yeah, that's all great. Um, I, I believe people learn through others' stories. So I used my stories, as I mentioned, to bring everything to light. And like I said, where I, I failed and some of my successes, um, so that people can learn through through my own my own adventures or my experiences. Yeah, that, that's good. The power of storytelling, you know, and, and we are sort of in a way natural storytellers. I think that's another gift that we've all forgotten that we have. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's about the story of one. We're so obsessed with data mm. and data is great. Data can tell you a lot of the what that's going on. But to really be moved by something, you need the story of the one in order to really make that heart connection and then hopefully the head and the heart link mm. up and you're motivated to action yeah no i think the charities sort of understand that when they were talking about you know there's 10 million children dying as opposed to you know there, there's julie who's who's dying you know and that exactly. one story was more powerful than the, the 10 million number yeah. Uh, yeah we all relate to that story and i think you know when we look at empathy and we you know look at the workplace and we look at now the effort towards diversity, um, equality and inclusion in the workplace, this empathy from a story of one point, And I think this lived experience, um, mm -hmm. I think is so critical that the people sort of try and understand, well, what's it really feel like to live a life as a disabled person, as a person of color, as a, um, a person of sexual minority, you know, and those stories help you then become more, yeah empathic i think more than the data yeah yeah absolutely that that's what you're making the connection with the the data tells you oh there's a problem here or something's happening but it's the story of the one person that gives you all the rich nuance and texture of what it is like because it is challenging for people you know on the surface to see like through the data well what's really happening what's the nuance mm. to this that can then um, give me insight or inspire me to then take action and do something. Yeah, so you've got the steps, you've got the inspiration through the story, and then I suppose people have got to go out and practice, right? If you don't practice, if you don't do these things on a regular basis, you won't develop, I presume, just like anything yeah. else. It's a muscle. Yeah. An empty it muscle. is totally a muscle. And I, I struggle with it. Dismantling judgment, I think I write in the book, it's like a genetic dominant gen gene in my family of brown eyes and judgy. Um, and so I'm constantly having to catch myself at having a thought or, you know, it, it, maybe I'll say something to my husband and I have to qualify like, okay, this is a very judgmental statement, but 
you know, so I don't want people to look at me being an empathy, you know, I call myself an empathy activist. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. I am far from it, but I have this insight and understanding and I'm trying and I'm encouraging other people to have the courage to try. Yeah. And I think that's the beautiful thing in the story. You know, I think people relate more to people who aren't perfect than to the perfect person. You know, I, I love the Dalai Lama, but it's very hard to to relate to him and, you know, his journey. Um, the people yeah. who are on that journey, but struggling with it, you find them somehow more relatable. And you can say, I could be like that. I could be a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I got to see the Dalai Lama speak in New York once years ago. And he, he's much more relatable because he talks about his foibles and his own humanity, where I think in writing and, and some of the things that are produced, mm. it is, you know, and it is, it is harder. You, you want to draw inspiration from, from him and those uh, people like him but we do need to see the, the permission mm. that it's okay. Um, yeah. You know, you want, you want your trainer. I'm, I'm, I'm a Peloton uh, person and I was doing a core. I'm doing this crush your core series right now, which Ouch. core. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> core, and I'm like, I, I, <laughs> I know where my empathy muscle is. I don't know where my core muscles are. So, <laughs> but I really appreciate um, Emma Lovewell as the instructor. And she talks about like, it's okay. This is, this is hurting. You're probably shaking. I'm shaking right now myself. That's part of this and it's okay. And she gives you permission to be human and to, to like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do all of this, but it, and it actually motivates me to try. You know, I, I don't give up as easily um, with that. It, it, it's like, okay, yeah, I, I'm going to do this. I was shaking. I stopped for a second. I'm going to get back into it. And and I think that is so critical for all of us. Oh, they are, they something, are. We've, something we've forgotten because to your social media point, there's just this like gloss that everybody tries to put on their, their you know, their brand um, and yep. whatever their media channels are. And it's like, no, that's that's not the real story. No, it's not. Although I must admit, I am touched by a move towards authenticity um, that I'm seeing on even in places like LinkedIn, which was traditionally, you know, put your game face on if you want to win business. And now yeah. it's almost switched to the other way. And sometimes you feel, well, are people really pushing this now as a, as a marketing thing? But the main thing is, you know, they're now there is permission to be authentic, which is good. absolutely. And we noticed that um, last summer. So we have a, a longitudinal series that we call navigating to a new normal. And we've been tracking American adults qualitatively and quantitatively mm -hmm. since the start of the pandemic. And one of the things that we were noticing in our own lives and we're exploring with our respondents was just this idea of the FOMO seems to have gone away from some of the posts. It's not gone completely, but life isn't so polished all the time um, for people. There's a lot more authentic realness that's happening. Um, and, and, you know, we'll see if that holds up, but so far it does like, you, you know, you look at photo dumps that people made of their travels last year. It wasn't the, Ooh, here I am posed in just the right way at sunset in a bikini. It was, okay, here we are. We look a little sweaty off of the beach, but look at this view. This is so right. fun. You know, we yeah. had such a great time. 
um, it's it's definitely less perfect, and I think that's awesome. And I think that will help with empathy as well as we we more relate to other people's lives as being more as messy as ours and exactly different ways. So that's cool. So let's getting towards the end, but I want to talk about stories a little bit because you mentioned that you know you share a lot of your own stories in your book, and do you have a favorite story? Mm. Can you pick one that you have to say? Okay, this is. The, well, yes. Um, I mean, there, there's, there. All my children are, are, are my favorite. But um, there is one. Here's the book. Yay. Um, there is one, and I was just doing the audio recording for it yesterday. And actually, there's, well, yeah, there's two of them. One of them is uh, the chapter is called Mirror Mirror, and it's about a discovery that I made in the bathroom of a respondent's home. Um, and so it's in the active listening section and I use it to illustrate the point of like, you've got to be paying attention, um, to not just what somebody's saying, but the things that are around you. And I talk a lot about the bathroom and how, um, you know, the bathroom is this interesting place where we, it's where a lot of personal expression actually comes about. It's where you put your, your sort of things that represent your sense of humor, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's the funny magazines or the, the you know, cartoon or whatever that, oh, yeah, let's put this up in the bathroom. And so I was in the woman's bathroom on a bio break, actually. And we had, we had toured the house. We we're on this big four hour in home. We had toured the house, including the bathroom. But when we had toured the bathroom, we didn't go in. We just kind of stood at the door. Okay, there it all is and la, 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 whatever. And you couldn't totally see the toilet. It was blocked behind the shower and the shower curtain. And then later we were taking a bio break and I had uh, two female clients and a female videographer and they all used the bathroom and they come back in, no big deal. And I go in and, you know, I'm a guy and I needed to pee. So I was peeing, standing up and facing the wall and get started doing my business. And I look up. And I noticed this mirror um, and it's just this odd sort of, there's a line kind of bisecting my uh, reflection. I'm like, what's going on here? And I widened my field of view to take in, oh, this is actually a piece of art. It's stained glass. And then there's a shape in the mirror that is actually an erect male penis and balls in mirror glass. And it's like, how did we miss that? <laughs> like, what is this? And so, of course, I finish my business and I, I go back out and I ask her, like um, the respondents in the book, I changed all the names. Mm. The respondent's name is Amelia. And I'm like, Amelia, I just happened to notice in your bathroom and I like, can't even get that out. And she starts roaring with laughter. <laughs> and she tells us a story. She's a mid-50s Black woman. We're in an inner suburb of Philadelphia. And she tells us the story about how, you know, she was, uh, had been married for a long time, divorced, and then hanging out with her girlfriends, noticed how much her girlfriends were changing themselves for that. And so she had that commission. She came across a stained glass artist at a, an art fair, had that commissioned. And she said, because I want to, you know, I can see that every single morning. I walk into the bathroom and I have that. And I don't have to change myself for that, the way I've seen so many of my friends go crazy. I have that and I can look at it whenever I want to. And it's just such a wonderful empowerment anthem and testament to pay attention. Like, don't, don't 
close yourself down. Like even if you're taking a break to go to the bathroom, there are things to take in and to learn and, and just pay, keep your eyes open. Right. And widening that vision. Uh, exactly. Because we try to see the bigger picture and you'll learn so much more. That's fantastic. So we've talked about so many wonderful tips and advice for people of how they can maybe bring some more empathy to their own life. If you had to name three that we've shared today, would you be able to name your top three tips for today? Absolutely. So the first one is uh, understand there's emotional and cognitive empathy and don't be afraid of that. The second one is to dismantle your judgment. That's the thing that's going to get in most people's way. Make sure you're not, you know, being, make sure you are not casting aspersion. Mm. Um, that's how judgment shows up. And the third one is be courageous. That's, that's a beautiful one. I love courage. Um, Brings us back to the, the Maya Angelou um, exactly. quote for sure. So that's wonderful. Um, and your book, obviously, is a great resource. Um, tell me more about that by Rob Volp. And I'm sure it's available on Amazon and where a good bookshop that you might want to find. Even your local Barnes and Noble will have it. Absolutely. Order, so that's fantastic. absolutely. Indie bookshops, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. The response has been really, really wonderful. Yeah. So and now far. you're doing an audio book version. Is that right? And recording an audio book. I think it's coming out in late. We're having a little debate on the date, but I think late April, early May, it'll be out and it's me narrating it. So you're going to hear the stories directly from, from me and where we're using some comment, you know, quotes and, and transcripts, um, bringing in some voiceover actors to play some of the other characters. So it's going to be really awesome. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Wow, that's fantastic. I look forward to listening to that. And if people want to expand their view and go beyond their book, are there any other people they should sort of be following or any films or books or you could recommend? Oh. There's so many. Um, so a current book that just came out is Leading with Empathy uh, by Gautam Palapa. That just came out uh, recently. I would also recommend people read um, Honestly Speaking by Andrew Blotke. That's all about communication and how to be a better communicator. Um, Anita Nowak, uh, N-O-W-A-K, is a great person to follow either on Instagram or LinkedIn. She's uh, based out of Canada, really has a deep understanding of empathy, and she's actively posting a lot of things on empathy. Um, otherwise, I would encourage people like, you know, on, on Instagram, follow the hashtag empathy. There's, uh, that's what I started doing. Um, there's a lot of things there. We're putting out, out a lot of content on LinkedIn. Um, so there's a lot of great stuff. If you are actually, if you, if some people really identify with the idea of being an, not the idea, with the state of being an empath, mm. um, there's a really great podcast called Empath Up uh, that really works with people that are highly empathetic or highly sensitive people and helps them kind of understand how to navigate and, and manage. Because while there's an empathy crisis on one side, there are people that have this beautiful gift of being really empathetic. And that comes with its own challenges. And uh, the, the two women that do that podcast just do a beautiful job helping people understand how to, how to be and how to exist. 
Yeah, that's right. That's that's the subject for another whole podcast to talk about the challenge of being overly empathic and the, yes. the taking everybody else's energy and how that affects you. Uh, yeah, definitely a whole whole lesson there to to go and through. It was a problem I had when I first started interviewing and moderating. I was carrying all these stories and how do you, how do you right. release them? Yeah. How do you become yourself again on Friday evening? Right. So right, right. a challenge without having too many glasses of wine. Uh, <laughs> so yes, that's the thing to think about. So the last question for you Rob, really is because we're talking about joy. I love to ask what brings you joy? Honestly, talking about empathy, Every conversation, I just, I mean, I light up. This is not an act. I, I love doing that. Um, other things that bring me joy are baking, uh, doing something creative with my husband. Um, he's a highly creative person. And when we get together to do something, whether it's drag or we're, you know, filming a little video for work, a work thing, it's just, it brings me a lot of joy. And then my cats, um, for sure. There's just... How many cats is that? We have three. They're all siblings. They'll all be 11 uh, in April. And they are just, yeah, they bring me constant joy and love. They're lap cats and just love, love. And yeah. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. So people can connect with you, um, Find type in... Rob Volp on LinkedIn and find you easily or go to Ignite360 to your website to find more information about what you're offering for yes. companies and so on there. Is that right? Yes. And you can find me on Instagram as Empathy Activist. You can follow me on Peloton and high five me at Empathy Activist. Uh, I'm on Twitter at RM Volpe. I'm on most of the social media as either Empathy Activist or RM Volpe is usually where to find me. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Rob. It's been wonderful to have you on the show today. Really enjoyed the chat. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you for all the work and helping people realize joy and, and what that's all about. It's so important. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and just also a big thank you to our listeners um, who I hope feel inspired and empowered by my chat with Rob today um, about the joy superpower of empathy and how that can bring more joy not only to your own life, but also to the lives of others. And so thanks once again for listening. And I hope you'll tune in next week for the next episode of the Art and Science of Joy podcast. Until then, stay well, stay joyful and practice your empathy. Thank you.